Okay, sure you've probably noticed, but our news is full of people in trouble. I guess that's what makes news, from disputes between the unions and their employers to corporations that are just teetering on the brink of bankruptcy to individuals who are victims of pretty dreadful crime. Our news is full of stories of people in trouble. It can be hard, can't it, watching the news without ending up feeling slightly depressed, without starting to wonder what kind of a world we really live in, even to start questioning where on earth God is in it all. Now, the only way some Christians can handle this is to try and blot it out and deny it, to bury their head in the sand. They believe that once you become a Christian, your troubles are over. The problem is, it's patently not true. We like their optimism, but we just don't think they're being realistic. Others are quite aware of all the problems, but believe there are no answers. It's no deliverance from the trials, the difficulties, the difficult circumstances of this life. Now, we perhaps appreciate their realism, but we don't agree with their conclusions either. As Christians, we believe there are problems in life, but there are also solutions. So what are the solutions? What do we do in times of trouble? How are we to live when it appears that God has forgotten us? Who will deliver us from our trials? Is there deliverance for us when we're in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances? Well, one of the most perilous times in the history of the people of God is found way back in the Old Testament in the book of Esther, which we're looking at through this term. The action takes place when most of the Jews, the people of God, have been scattered through the Persian Empire about 500 years before Jesus came to this earth. Last week, if you were around, if you remember, we introduced introduced you to King Xerxes, who ruled over this vast Persian Empire. He reigned with almost invincible power. Almost, because when it came to the crunch his wife wouldn't actually do what he asked her to do. And we saw last time how his wife, Vashti, the queen, ended up being banished for her insubordination. And we watched the Persia's Next Top Model contest and saw how it was won by this lady, Esther, a Jewish girl who kept very quiet about her Jewishness. And what we began to see last time was that behind the visible powers of the world, Xerxes and his modern-day equivalents, There just might be an invisible ruler. And he just might use the weak to overthrow the strong. Now, it's just a hint. And, of course, it doesn't convince a skeptic. A skeptic says, I can quite see that the visible powers of this world aren't quite as strong as they think they are. I'm quite prepared to accept that the mighty Xerxes isn't really driving the story. I know enough about history to know that the visibly strong aren't always as strong as they think they are. But the point is that this world isn't an ordered world at all. It's a chaotic world. 30 years ago, the Nobel Prize winning biochemist Jacques Monnet, or Monod, should I say, sorry, my French pronunciation is slightly askew. He wrote a book entitled Chance and Necessity. Anyone here read it? 
So I could have got away with that minor slip. Never mind. Uh, He wrote this book in which he argued that the whole of human evolution is driven not by destiny or any overarching purpose. There is no hand that moves the world. There's no judge. There's no justice. It's all driven by chance. It's just a lottery, a game of evolutionary roulette. Just last month, Stephen Hawking made front page news with the claim that he had disproved God, told us to face the fact that really there is no living God beyond us controlling the world. And if you think there is, you're wallowing in make-believe. In the words of Richard Dawkins, faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence. Now, Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking or Jacques Monod might very easily point to the book of Esther to back up their claims. I mean, see what kind of a world we live in, and then face up to the facts. What I want to do this morning is equip you to face up to the facts without losing your faith. I want to start by painting a picture of the world Esther inhabited. It's a world full of bad news. It's a world, I suggest, is not too dissimilar from the world that we live in today. But I also want us to see there's much to learn in this story of Esther of how to face the difficulties and the disasters in life without losing our confidence and our faith and our hope in God. Really, my message is simple. Despite appearances, God is still at work. First of all then, let's take a quick look at Esther's world. First of all, the book of Esther portrays a world in which loyalty is largely unrewarded. If you've got a Bible with you, you've got it open to Esther, we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 2. I want to start reading in verse 19. Esther 2 verse 19. When the virgins, those were the contestants in this beauty contest, when they were assembled a second time, Mordecai, who if you remember was Esther's older cousin, who for whatever reason had ended up bringing her up through her childhood, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, they became angry and began to conspire to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving all the credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And all of this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, what happened to the loyal Mordecai? Did God see to it that he was honored for his loyalty? Was he rewarded in any way? Not a bit of it. Xerxes pays no attention whatsoever to the one who deserved all the praise, all the rewards, all the plaudits. Now the skeptic reading all of this says, well, that's just the world we live in. How can you possibly say that there is a just judge? How can you say there is justice? How can you say there is a loving, sovereign hand which moves the world? I mean, loyalty and good works just goes unrewarded. Furthermore, secondly, it's a world in which wickedness often gets promoted. 
It's not just that the good people don't always get to the top, it's often that the bad people do. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Now, it's no coincidence that we're told here that Haman was an Agagite. 500 years previously, Agag had been the king of a group of people called the Amalekites. They were a pretty nasty bunch. They were vigorous enemies of Israel, the people of God. And the narrator here describes Haman as an Agagite, I think for a very particular reason. He's intentionally drawing attention to Haman's pretty dodgy ancestry. And as we're going to see as we work through this story in the weeks to come, he was every bit as bad as his ancestors. He was a terrible prime minister. He manipulates Xerxes for his own ends. The only reason he seems to be in politics is for his own glory. He loves it when everyone bows down to him, and he gets livid when they don't. But that's the kind of world we live in, isn't it? I mean, you can see it today in places like Zimbabwe and Sierra Leone. But you can also see it in the perception of politicians in our own society. I mean, how often have you heard people saying, well, the problem with politics is everyone's in it for what they can get out of it. They're in it for their chauffeur-driven cars and the fame and the media exposure and the expenses. That's the perception, isn't it? Well, I mean, what kind of a world's that? If there's a God running it, he doesn't seem to be doing a particularly good job. I mean, the wicked just seem to keep getting away with it. Third thing we notice here is slightly more thought-provoking. Maybe it gets closer to the heart of the issue for us. You see, thirdly, this passage sets before us a world in which God's people are hated. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. We're not told why. It could be religious principle. Maybe just didn't respect him. But whatever the reason, it sets in motion a chain of events that ends with the threat of a holocaust. Chapter 3, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai wouldn't kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Why? Why such irrational, such disproportionate, such bitter hostility, not just to Mordecai, but to every one of God's people throughout the entire known world? Why? It's not just here. In Romans 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 44 and says, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why is it that that is the characteristic experience of God's people. 
Well, the text gives us a clue. We'll, we'll come to it in just a moment. But first of all, verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Haman was clearly a superstitious man. Cast these lots, these dice, to determine which day to slaughter the Jews. Of course, Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is actually from the Lord. But Haman doesn't believe that. Haman just thinks he's rolling dice. It's just a lottery, just a game of evolutionary roulette. But then in verse 8, it's a very revealing clue as to why the world hates the people of God. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. You see, these people have different customs, and the accusation is they don't obey the king's laws. It's a deceitful half-truth. After all, we've just seen how Mordecai actually saved the king's life. But nonetheless, there is at least a grain of truth in it. Before Christ came, the Jews were the people who belonged uniquely and specially to the living God. Since Christ came, that group has been open to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. But in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, any man, any woman, any child who belongs to God, it's as though they have a dual loyalty. It's honor the emperor or the government of the land. That, that's what it teaches in the Bible, in Romans 13, for example. But we also have a higher loyalty. A loyalty to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And there'll be times when the world hates us for it. Many of you will have experienced a bit of this. Maybe not to the level that Mordecai and the Jews of his day experienced it, but maybe for you at work or at college, at school. Perhaps even in your family, you've encountered something of this kind of reaction to your faith. Maybe people have turned against you, treated you badly, unjustly, because of what you believe. Well, of course, it's a masterful piece of manipulation on Haman's part. See here, he's, he's persuaded the king that he should be prime minister. When we're the readers of the story, we know that Mordecai would be a better bet. He's persuaded the king that the Jews should all be destroyed, although we, the readers, know that the king's own wife, the queen, is in fact Jewish. And he's persuaded him that the Jews don't benefit the king in any way, although we know that one of them has actually saved his life. Yet the king falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And so finally, this chilling passage draws to an end. We're confronted with a world in which God's people look as though they're going to be destroyed altogether. Looks as though God's people have no future, on the brink of being completely wiped out. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. Do with the people as you please. Then, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. 
They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and were sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and even little children, all on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and also to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they'd be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman, they sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Message is simple. If the people of God think they have a future, they need to think again. They face certain extinction. God's dead, and soon they will be too. Except for the Song of Solomon, the book of Esther is the only one in the whole Bible that doesn't mention God. Never once in this entire book is he explicitly mentioned by name. It's as though he's absent. It's as though he's disinterested, perhaps, or maybe even powerless to do anything to alter events. And isn't that how it feels for us at times? Maybe faced with a seemingly never-ending barrage of bad news that we kind of noted at the beginning, forced to endure problems and difficulties that just leave us feeling perplexed, perhaps even bewildered, we wonder whether God has forgotten us or is against us, or that maybe he's just been a figment of our imagination all along. Like Esther, we inhabit a world where loyalty often goes unrewarded, where wickedness often gets promoted, where God's people tend to be hated, even threatened with destruction. How does this happen? Why does this happen? What are we to believe? Let's return to the book of Esther. Let's see what we can learn from it. Because despite appearances, it portrays a world in which God is still very much at work. Although God is never named here, actually this book is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty of God that we have in the whole Bible. Because it's one long commentary, really, on that famous verse in Romans 8, verse 28, where Paul declares that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now, it's easy to miss that in a story like this one in Esther. There's no burning bush, no parting of the sea, uh, there's no pillar of fire, there's none of these, any, uh, of these any other spectacularly miraculous interventions of God that we find so often in the pages of the Bible. This is God working in a very different way. This is God working providentially. Is God working through the apparently normal actions of everyday people? There aren't a whole lot of obvious miracles. Just a whole lot of normal, everyday occurrences. It's a pro- proverb, isn't there, that says, large doors swing on small hinges. The very course of history is determined by the smallest of incidents. And as you look at the story of Esther... 
is filled with crucial happenings that look very much like chance happenings. Certainly how it looked to people at the time, and perhaps how it looks to you as well as you, you read through this story. I want you to think about it. If it's all driven by chance, if really it's just a lottery, a game of evolutionary roulette, then there are a tremendous number of coincidences going on here. I mean, the king just happens to get drunk and just happens to demand his wife to parade in front of the party-goers. And his wife, the queen Vashti, she just happens to refuse. And the king just happens to banish her. Esther just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favoured by the king. And Esther just happens to be Jewish. Mordecai just happens to overhear this plot to kill the king. Just happens to save the king's life. And the whole incident just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. And as we're going to see as we work through the story, one night Xerxes just happens to have trouble sleeping. And Xerxes just happens to have a book read to him to help him get back to sleep. And this book just happens to contain the record of Mordecai's deed. Just happened that Mordecai was never rewarded back then. And Haman just happens to walk in just as the king is wondering how to honor Mordecai. I could keep going. So many coincidences through this story. Is that how you read the story? It's all driven by chance. Just a lottery. Like a game of roulette. Look, if all you see in this story are lucky coincidences, then you see it merely as a celebration of Mordecai's wisdom and Esther's tremendous courage. And I guess most of all, a celebration of luck and chance. I can assure you that is not how this book is written. The book of Esther was written to show us that it is God himself who acts to achieve his purposes, even in the face of opposition from the most powerful people on the face of the planet. So what are the lessons we're to take away from all of this? Well, first of all, and I've kind of been drip-feeding you this lesson through this talk. First of all, God is still at work, even when it doesn't look like it. When God works in extraordinary ways, we know. But when he works in ordinary ways, it's like we assume he's not even there. If we don't see how God's working in our lives, we end up getting pretty desperate, can't we? In fact, we often get mad at God. The book of Esther teaches us that it is always inappropriate to get mad at God because he's not working in our life. How do you know what he's doing? You see, a book like the book of Esther, you can look back and say, well, that was important, and yep, that, that was important, that was important. Good thing the king got drunk and started boasting and so on. And hindsight's a wonderful thing. Listen, there are things going on right now in your life. It's like you're looking smack at them. But they're so ordinary, they're so normal, they're so usual that you have no idea what God's doing. You assume God's forgotten you. You kind of imagine he's not there. He is. He is there. His apparent silence doesn't imply absence. His hiddenness isn't abandonment. He is still working out his purposes even when it looks like he's nowhere to be seen. Here's what I think. I think the hiddenness of God 
still accomplishing his purposes simply heightens the sense of God's power. The bringing about of God's purposes, even when it's not immediately obvious, gives me a whole lot more confidence for my life. Because that's my experience. I don't tend to see the stunning, miraculous interventions. I've never personally heard the audible voice of God. Never had an angelic visitation. I've stood at the coast looking at the sea, never see the sea part. Never seen mountains move. As a child I used to pray and say, mountain move. Never happened. Never seen water turn into wine. I often pray for that one. Never happens. All I often see is things apparently not going according to plan. But if I know that God's still at work, even through seemingly negative circumstances, and that's powerful, it means there is hope even when my situation seems at its most bleak. Lesson number one. God is still at work even when it doesn't look like it. Lesson number two. God will certainly deliver his people. God will certainly deliver his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will deliver us? Esther would teach you that. What about the leader in Dagestan that we told you about recently who got gunned down as he left his church office? What about those Christians even now being killed in Afghanistan and Sudan and Pakistan? What do you mean when you say God will certainly deliver his people? Esther tells us this, that God will preserve his people for his own purposes and to his own glory. As he put it through his prophet Isaiah several centuries earlier, Isaiah 54 verse 17, no weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Want to consider how safe the church is. Want you to consider how safe we who believe in God as individuals, how safe we are. Not from earthly violence, not from physical death, but from final ruin before God. Isn't that what Jesus himself taught? Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. God's the only one we should fear. And if we're in Christ, we don't need to fear. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be anxious about his love for us. Certainly don't need to be anxious about his, his ability to work out his purposes in our lives, ultimately to preserve us for eternity. He's our deliverer. Now, if that is true, be comforted in your trials, in the difficult, perplexing, bewildering situations you are confronted with in your own personal life. Be comforted. God doesn't abandon his people. What others intend to harm us, God in his sovereignty can and will work out for good. When you find yourself in dangerous 
and difficult trials, and you will, remember the book of Esther and find in it faith and comfort and strength. I'm telling you, if you look for God's action in your life, if you trace it out, if you reflect on it, you will be surprised by what you start to see. I'm thinking of my own life, of event after event after event, which at the time just seemed like small, trivial, maybe even irritating and perplexing. But looking back, I see it's the hand of God working good for me. Back in 1994, before some of you were born, I wanted desperately to move to Birmingham. I felt God was calling me to come here to plant the church. Uh, I met up with uh, other church leaders and said, yep, recognize you should be going, but want you to wait. In fact, want you to wait for two years. And I was incredibly frustrated and I argued and tried to convince them, no, I should just go now. But finally, I kind of decided, well, I would wait. And in those two years, I just happened to meet Helen and we just happened to get married Uh, and uh, ended up moving to Birmingham together three months after getting married. If I just kind of pressed on, and uh, uh, that wouldn't have happened. When I first visited Birmingham with a friend of mine, wondering where to plant the church, kind of praying as we went around the city, God, it's a huge city, where do we locate ourselves? Kind of driving around, no sense of any leading whatsoever. And all of a sudden, well, that hadn't been forecasting the weather, there was this huge blizzard and our car came to a halt in Bearwood. And we were forced to get out. We wandered round and thought, well, maybe this would be a good place to start. So when we got our first house, that's where we lived. And here we are today in Lawswood Boys School, just at the end of Bearwood High Street. Many of you will know the long saga of us trying to sell our house. It took us three years to sell our house. In fact, there are people here today who look round our house but didn't buy it. And we had over 60 different viewings. Still didn't sell the place. Think, what's going on? We believe it's right to move. It's not happening. Incredibly frustrated. Constantly have to keep the house tidy, which I didn't mind so much, uh, but just so, because people coming up. But it just wore, wore on and on and on. Eventually, just this, this year, ended up buying a house that we could never have afforded three years ago because of what's happening in the market and other circumstances, situations in that situation, uh, end up picking up a house we never have got before. Earlier on uh, last year, uh, I left the house on my bike, got to the end of the road and thought, I'm missing something. wasn't wearing my, the, the helmet on my head. Uh, and uh, just really clearly, it's in my mind, I thought, I must go back. And I'm naturally impatient. I thought, oh, I'll just keep going. No, no, I must go back and get my cycle helmet. Went back and got it. En route to the church office, uh, I had a collision with a car in which the cycle helmet, which I'd gone back for, was completely mangled up. wasn't wearing it. I probably wouldn't be here today. In fact, if I hadn't gone back for the helmet, I might have slightly missed the car. But anyway, <laughs> let's not go there. I remember as a child, a uh, situation where in the car as a family, car broke down, racing to get somewhere, again, really frustrating, turned on the radio, and heard about a serious accident on the stretch of road that we would have been on if the car hadn't broken down. Let's count on the number of times, even for us as a family, where financially things have been tight and uh, prayed and God hasn't provided and it's got past the 11th hour, nothing's happened, and then God's provided just what we've needed. So many things that at the time caused a great deal of confusion and bewilderment. Looking back, I now see as the gracious hand of God at work in my life. In your life, how many coincidences can you think of? And you're not done with your life yet. But even from the point you're at right now, how many chance happenings can you see that actually are really significant? 
Doesn't that speak of God's care for you? Of his kind concern working for you when you're oblivious to what he was doing? This attention to intricate detail in your life. Trust him. Trust that this God puts the right people in the right place for the right time. Don't imagine that God isn't in control just because circumstances are often really hard or even tragic. I mean, think of the cross. At the point of greatest pain and seeming defeat, Jesus was actually winning the ultimate victory over sin, hell, and death. People at the time wouldn't have thought that. God's wisdom is seen in arranging even the seemingly most catastrophic events, the most bewildering, perplexing of circumstances to produce the greatest results for his people. If you believe this, be courageous in your obedience to God. Don't be passive. God wants you to be active. He wants you to act on this. I mean, if God is in it, if God is with you, then what he's called you to do is going to work, however much the odds are stacked against it. I want you to go away and think about this. Why has God brought you to where you are today? Because every one of us is where we are for a purpose. God's placed us in our office, in our school, in our college, in our neighborhood. It's not an accident. We'll look at this in a little more detail in a few weeks' time, but I just want to leave this thought with you for now. If God's purpose for us is to be where we are, there are surely things he intends to accomplish by our being there. There's a significance to your life I think some of you don't quite grasp right now. Are people's lives that will be dramatically impacted just by the way you live. For some of you, there's policy change that you're to introduce that will lead to an increase in righteousness and justice. Some of you, who God intends to use to bring change in the whole academic world. For others of you, it's in the media or even in the arts. For others, God's going to give you huge financial success so you can invest more money into the advance of his kingdom. There are people here whose children, you might not even have children right now, but there are people here whose children will go on and do far more than you could ever do. Only because of the way that you choose to bring them up. Just by where you live, you're going to have an effect on the people around you, in your street, in your community. For many of you, maybe even for all of us, there are people that God intends to save through us. You see, you are not here by chance. You are here for a purpose. Your life has a whole greater significance. But at the same time, there will always be some people who will envy you, who will be suspicious of you even persecute you because you're different. They don't understand what motivates you. You don't fit into the world's mold. The truth is, we will face serious problems in life, certainly not immune to them as Christians. But the biblical realism that the Bible points us to acknowledges that while there are problems, there are very real solutions too. Solutions of deliverance. Solutions that really do bring hope. 
So to quote Hebrews 10.23, let us hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And he will finish writing the story he's begun to write on the pages of history, even on the pages of your life. We can be completely assured that God's people will be delivered from all their troubles, though we're not quite there yet. God's people still have to wait. But we wait in the confidence that God's in control. He's sovereign. He's still at work. And he does deliver.